Is liberalism neutral? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Jacob Levy. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today our guest is Jacob Levy. Jacob is Tomlinson Professor of Political Theory, Chair of the Department of Political Science, and Associated Faculty in the Department of Philosophy at McGill University. He is the coordinator of McGill's Research Group on Constitutional Studies and was the founding director of McGill's Yan P. Lin Center for the Study of Freedom and Global Orders in the Ancient and Modern Worlds. He is also a distinguished fellow for the study of liberalism and the free society at the Institute for Humane Studies and a senior fellow at the Niskanen Center. Jacob, of course, has been on The Curious Task with me a few times before, and we're welcoming him back. Jacob, welcome back to The Curious Task. It's nice to see you not through a Zoom software. It's nice to see you in person. It is terrific to see you in person again. And thank you for coming back on the show. Jacob, as you well know, we base each episode on a theme in question and go over the answers and conversation takes us. Our question today is, is liberalism neutral? And it gives us a chance to explore some thoughts on what some say liberalism is, isn't, what it should be, and so on, especially as related to neutrality. So let's start with some concepts and then drill our way down from there. Even liberalism aside, what do we mean by neutral? Like if someone's talking about neutrality in this case to frame our conversation, what are we focusing on? Uh, Usually what we're focusing on is... Uh, institutional neutrality, neutrality of treatment across certain kinds of differences and what those kinds of differences are is part of what's going to be up for conversation. Classically, justice is blind. Justice, when represented anthropomorphically, wears a blindfold because the rule of law, rules of justice are neutral as among persons. They're neutral with respect to the identity of the people before them or the status of the people before them. The rule of law is supposed to apply to everyone without reference to who they are, only with reference to what they have done that brings them before a court. Um, That's a very old idea from a long time before liberalism. Distinctively liberal ideas that are at the root of the debates that we're going to be talking about, um, substantially centered originally on questions of religion and speech. So what we mean by neutrality often is how closely does something resemble by analogy the commitment that developed over the course of early liberalism to neutrality among religions, that the state would not establish any one religion and that freedom of religion would be granted to all religions equally, that the rules of the state, the rules of law, public justification – wouldn't make any reference to the content of particular religious claims. Again, there are questions about what you can do. So here's where the usual reductio about human sacrifice kicks in. I don't need to know the content of your religious views in order to say you can't have human sacrifice. I just say there's a rule against homicide. Right. But your belief in the God who is ordering human sacrifice, the state has no business adjudicating. That idea sits really close to the foundation of everything that we think of as liberalism since the 17th or 18th century and a great deal of what we just think of as the modern constitutional state, whether liberal or not. Um, Then debates that we're going to talk about arise about 
whether that's a good way to think about liberal institutions altogether. Then there are two other things that come up. One is to say, when we talk about neutrality, we're talking about neutrality of purpose or justification. Uh, so that a rule or an institution or a practice affects different people differently or affects different worldviews differently or affects different religions differently, uh, that's not itself a problem according to ideas that take this purpose or justification thought seriously. So long as it's the case that adversely affecting one of those people, one of those worldviews, one of those religions isn't the purpose of the rule. The other, of course, is neutrality of effect. Mm. There are ways of talking about neutrality about which we would sometimes say uh, the rule isn't neutral because it has the actual outcome of adversely affecting people on some grounds that we think they shouldn't be adversely affected by. This starts to be a little bit like uh, equality of outcome versus equality mm -hmm. of opportunity debates, but it's uh, – it's generally not actually about individual people. Mm. It's generally about ways of life or systems of belief or kinds of practices. And uh, with there's, – there's a lot of – a lot of agreement though I think not complete agreement that neutrality of effect is an impossible ideal to attain and maybe is an unattractive idea altogether. Mm. Uh, though I think – we should be careful about that and there are times when we actually do care about neutrality of effect. Then the debates circle around, is it the case that neutrality of justification or neutrality of purpose is a valid test, is something that we really want to ask about states, institutions, laws, practices or about philosophies, world, uh, about a liberal theory or a little liberal philosophy altogether. Uh, and there might be different answers to the questions, should states be neutral and should liberalism as a doctrine be neutral? Mm -hmm. And so so on, on that note then, you, you said that many people have thought or do think that liberalism is sort of at its core a kind of neutrality. Um, I just want to circle back to something you said before about like, you know, the discussion on religion and so on. Is, is that sort of where that fundamental idea comes from back to the old discussions in the 1700s for example and so on about the state and its neutrality with religions like is this idea of liberalism at core or in essence sort of a form of neutrality on at least one issue then blossoming onto others sort of from that seed or is there other things going on there i i think that the the general rule of law idea is also in the background okay um i think that liberalism is a theory about the law-governed state. It's a specific kind of law-governed state. And therefore, even before you get to religious neutrality, there's already some meaningful sense in which a question about liberalism is a question about a state that has the rule of law in some minimal fundamental sense. Mm -hmm. But the distinctively liberal version of neutrality, yes, religion is the original question. Right. And a great deal of the rest of what follows is about the question, how much are other things like like religion and should we understand what developed into liberal freedom of religion as a neutral idea I itself mm -hmm. before we even worry about whether other things are like it. Right. And I actually kind of wanted in our discussion today to get into some – basically the, the some of the objections uh, 
sort of to the idea that liberalism should or could be neutral. Um, these are some of the things that you outlined when we were exchanging notes together when we were uh, discussing what we wanted to talk about today. But before I get into the objections to that position, I mean, we did a nice overview and discussed a bunch of things just there. But before we uh, explore some objections, can you sort of outline what you think the stance of or summarize the stance of someone would be if they say liberalism should be neutral of course we can't say this is therefore the stance mm-hmm. and everybody thinks this and so on but but a person you would talk to that you might know that might come with uh, at the this whole discussion from the angle that yes liberalism should be neutral and here's why and so on how would you summarize that sort of stance if you will uh that what it means to have liberal law liberal governance liberal freedom is to have a state that allows people to make different choices and to lead different lives and that the way that we measure whether the state is respecting freedom is whether it has uh, what Michael Oakeshott referred to as adverbial rules in place that tell us not what to do but only how to do things. Um, a, A very standard example in the literature here is the difference between having traffic laws saying how you get to places is you drive on the right and you stop at red lights and you make your way to where you want to go Mm. following those adverbial rules that allow your going where you want to go to be compatible with everyone else also going where they want to go versus a rule that tells people where to go. Right. Um, The more we see adverbial rules characterizing how people lead their lives and the less often we have state institutions in particular telling people what to do, uh, then the more liberal freedom we have according to this worldview. So uh, how do I create a church? I create a church by having a number of co-religionists and we buy a building according to the general rule of property law right. and we incorporate as a nonprofit association according to the general rule of nonprofit corporations, uh, and at no point does the state evaluate the content of our religion. At no point does they tell us what to believe and what not to believe. We just follow the adverbial rules. Or how to proceed in our procedures as we're conducting our religious you know, duties and ceremonies and so on. I think you talk about that in your book, Rational and Pluralism and Freedom. I think that was a very good point as well. It's not just how to create a church or go about having a church, but what you, how you conduct yourself in there as well. Yeah, how how you, how ecclesiology is the technical word. How how do you govern your church? Uh, It applies to liberal economic questions as well. Uh, Does the state tell people what to produce? Does the state tell people what jobs to hold? Does the state dictate the use of resources? Or does the state have general property law, general contract law, general employment law within the context of which actors then make their various choices? Mm. Uh, And one of the things that I hope we'll talk about a couple of times is the comparisons between the religion case and the market case. Uh, Taking neutrality very seriously, I think, means a commitment to thinking of both of those as structured by adverbial rules. Excellent. And I think we'll get into that as I move us along to some of these like objections to essentially what you were just talking about. So if someone was to present a, a view like that that says, hey, you know, uh, here, here's a framework socially, culturally, and so on, uh, that this neutrality concept that you've outlined, um, you know, 
as we were exchanging some notes, you did note that people have some very interesting objections against this this whole concept, uh, obviously to lesser or more degrees as far as how much they object or how much neutrality they dislike. But I think we can get into each pillar here. I'm going to just actually pull a couple of quotes from some of the notes we were exchanging because I think you put it very nicely when we were uh, outlining what we want to talk about. So one of the uh, objections, I'll just pull this here. So, quote, liberalism's official neutrality is, in fact, the substantive promotion of particular ways of life. You know, uh, Protestantism, secularism and religion, consumerism, materialism and economics, etc. You, you list off some other things just to give some folks an idea. So can you can you explore this objection? I think through these objections as well, if, if you did have some counterpoints to the, the counterpoint, we can we can get to that as well. So, so, so what's this idea sure. here that liberalism is, in fact, uh, whether it wants to thinks it's neutral or not? Uh, promote, promoting certain ways of life. Sure. Uh, so the again, the classic standard case starts with religion, and the idea that had developed over the course of the 1700s, 1800s, that there was a meaningful practice like liberal neutrality with respect to religion that was a practice of freedom, came under criticism from religions that had a strongly communal orientation and had uh, strongly hierarchical internal governance. The standard case here is pre-Vatican II Catholicism. Liberal freedom of religion is committed to the idea not that religion actually is something that I choose for myself, but that the state will treat it as if it's something that I choose for myself. I might experience it as God mandates to me in my conscience, in my soul. God speaks to me. I have a personal relationship with the risen Christ, whatever. Um, I may not experience it as a choice. Right. But from the state's perspective, according to the neutral liberal freedom of religion, uh, the state will construe it as a choice, which is to say neither the state nor any other human actor can replace my own self-report about what religion I belong to and what church I ought to go to. That is from the traditional Catholic perspective, and I would add in some important ways from Jewish and Islamic perspectives. That's a very Protestant way of thinking about the religious believer, Hmm. that religious belief is a matter of individual conscience, not of social belonging, not of being raised in a set of practices that I might, over the course of my adult life, change my mind about religion Mm -hmm. a bunch of times. That's something that happened during the ferment of the Protestant Reformation and happens uh, especially on the more and more radical wings of the Protestant Reformation. And when we trace this idea of freedom of religion to someone like John Locke, John Locke is someone who is on the radical wings of the Protestant Reformation and his substantive commitment about what religion is like, not just his political philosophy, but his actual substantive religious beliefs Mm. are... A very individualistic kind of Protestantism. Catholic especially, critics of the liberal settlement in the 19th century, um, eventually coming to call this the heresy of Americanism, said religion is not a matter of indifference from the perspective of the community and it's not just something for individual people to try on and put off and keep changing their minds about. Even when the 19th century Catholic Church recognized the value of some public official practice of religious toleration, this is a deep corrosive mistake to teach people that the way they ought to view religion 
is just this casual individual preference. Mm. And that the what was becoming the standard public stance of liberal states in the 19th century was, according to these Catholic critics, deeply corrosive of serious religious commitment. It became impossible to really live your whole life inside one religious community, stably knowing that everyone else was going to as well, stably knowing, for example, that the spouse you married under the sacrament of marriage mm. would continue to view your marriage under the sacrament of marriage. Right. Uh, not knowing that the family who comes together to witness the baptism of your child as a sacrament will continue to honor that in the same way. When each of us becomes just an individual free actor, that teaches each of us that the rest of us are also going to be more casual about the communal part of their religious belief. And that's deeply substantively non-neutral. That tends to turn every religion into Protestantism. Hmm. This was the line of criticism. Right. And there's historical sociological truth to it. Hmm. In the 19th century United States, which was the most liberal in this sense state with respect to religion at the time, it was not in all senses the most religious state of the era, but it was with respect to religion. It's in the 19th century in the United States that we see the development of reform and conservative Judaism, which are pretty self-consciously Protestant denominations of Judaism that are much less oriented toward the permanent sense of communal belonging, the permanent sense of shared membership set apart from the rest of society, and reform and conservative Judaism are what it looks like when Judaism gets made Protestant by being surrounded by this liberal choice-oriented society. And the heresy of Americanism in Catholicism, it was the heresy of Americanism because in the United States, Catholics were increasingly treating their religion as something that they were individually choosing and could choose out of. Right. And eventually, so say some modern conservative Catholics, eventually in Vatican II, the heresy of Americanism, the liberal corrosiveness, actually did transform Catholicism into a kind of Protestantism as a result of the reforms of Vatican II. Mm. And and you, you mentioned earlier, like, you know, and, and it was a quick aside sort of thing, but you said there's sort of some historical and sociological truth to some some of the claims where people talk about, you know, the neutrality, quote unquote, sort of not being neutral at all. But I, I suppose from like sort of, a, I guess, like a, an economic, a political economic perspective in the broadest sense, just the fact that one would have sort of uh, based on where they are uh, geographically, culturally, so on, the kind of job they can take, the kind of land they can till, whatever one can go on and on, that there is just a limited set of choices, you know, where someone starts with a standing in life. So, um, you know, it, it, this idea that, you know, to just have this sort of liberal and quote unquote neutral framework around all of that is itself, I guess what I'm trying to say there's a starting point with a limitation regardless that is inherently not neutral within the framework of the society you're brought into. Yeah, uh, the, that's, that's, I think, a different problem. That's just to say, it's almost a truism, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> we, 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 we come into the world as social actors. Right. Um, I, I, I am not a free actor. I couldn't possibly be a free actor with respect to what my first or second or third languages mm -hmm. are, even though we have freedom to learn additional languages. We are born in particular places and there are some constraints. Right. Um, the, 
the two sides I'm talking about here, I think, would agree about that. Mm. It's just a question of whether we we take that fact of constraint as being uh, normatively so desirable that we would expect in people's whole lives it's important to preserve those communities that have socialized them mm. or uh, should there be public institutional neutrality such that people might migrate in and out. Right. And as we'll talk about, there are also some people who say at the other extreme that part of what it is to care about liberal freedom is to actively promote having more choices. Mm. And so if people are growing up in communities that shape their worldview too narrowly or if people are growing up in geographic or cultural milieus, that means they aren't aware of their choices – that a freedom-promoting state would be a state that actively made sure everyone was aware of more of their choices, was exposed to more possible choices. Um, the, and this is foreshadowing a little bit, but the, the critics of neutrality are not only the conservative critics who say the liberal state isn't really neutral because it corrodes all of our traditional things. Mm -hmm. The critics of neutrality include people who think of themselves as liberals saying – the neutral state isn't what we should want when we care about freedom. We should care about the active promotion of a free choice-oriented way of life. And I think that's a, that's a great place to leave off that, that pillar. I would like to spend more time on it, but for the sake of time, we, we, we must move on. I, th I think that was a great, as I said, full circle on it, though. So one of the other uh, objections, if you will, that you sort of outlined then, uh, against liberal neutrality, some quote again from our notes together, Liberalism is sociologically dependent on virtues and disciplines that it can't internally reproduce. And you go on to say, you know, for example, without the bourgeois responsibility, the Protestant worth ethic, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, scientific rationality, a belief in God to different degrees, the basic social and political restraint that makes a liberal order possible will collapse. I think that's a nice, succinct statement. I think that explains the objection in itself. But I thought, um, you know, if you want to elaborate further on that or expand further on what's going on behind there. Great. Um, so in, in the last bit of what I just said, I, I was distinguishing conservative critics of neutrality from choice promotion, liberal kinds of critics of neutrality. This is a, this is a third option. There's a third direction to criticize from. And the people who offer this often think of themselves as either being liberals or as being friendly neighbors to liberalism. But they think that the life of free choice, the regime of free government, the public institutions of making free choices uh, aren't self-sufficient. Uh, the first thing that you read out there was about the bourgeois sense of responsibility and a lot of listeners of The Curious Task will hear the echo here of what's become known as uh, Dieter McCloskey's bourgeois virtues mm -hmm. thesis. How shall we think about market liberalism and market economies? One way to think about them is once you have the rules of property ownership, free exchange of contract and uh, – public guarantee of private ownership of the means of production and free choice of occupation. Once you have those public neutral rules in place, whatever happens then is the market order. The bourgeois virtues thesis is that 
what we value in a modern market economy is substantially more than that. It is the set of character traits that made that order possible in the first place. A degree of honesty and promise-keeping, for example. It's not the case that contract law can actually do most of the work in ensuring that in a market order, in a market economy, buyers are honest and sellers are honest and promises are kept. Most of that work has to be done by people being oriented toward truth-telling on the public market. And if those virtues are corroded badly enough, then, so goes this line of criticism, the market order is not sustainable. This is a thought that also was developed by neoconservatives um, in the earliest stages of neoconservatism in the 1960s and 70s, uh, asking questions like, does capitalism depend on an or, uh, a population who's committed to saving rather than consuming? Mm. We didn't launch capitalism. We didn't launch the modern market economy until there was a substantial pool of investment capital built up. And that we had, according to uh, Max Weber's old Protestant ethic thesis, that we had for pre-liberal religious reasons. What's going to happen, says this line of criticism, is that as the liberal order advances and as people secularize and they become more consumeristic and they become more and more free choosers, free actors. Mm -hmm. Retreat to private life. That's right. Yeah, yes, that's right from Benjamin Constant. Uh, then those underpinnings that stabilize the order get eroded. Uh, the, the metaphor that Irving Kristol used in the 1970s was – Spending down the the capital on which – spending down the cultural capital on which the market economy hmm. uh, depended. This line of criticism can be something that someone who is a more thorough liberal in good standing than Irving Kristol might make. I think that this is uh, central to Alexis de Tocqueville's concerns hmm. about the rising liberal democratic order in the 19th century. Right. He thought that it was a very attractive order but worried that it was dependent on virtues that it was spending down mm -hmm. and that it would not regenerate from within itself. And he saw some possibility that the Americans had figured out ways to regenerate from within itself but thought that if you just transplanted liberal democratic institutions wholesale into France, that France of that era was not going to be able to regenerate those virtues from within itself. Yeah, that's very interesting, actually, especially you mentioned Tocqueville. I, I, I think, um, you know, just if one even at a very high level reads many of the, uh, not many, but just some of the writings and thinking of, of the founders of, um, you know, the United States, uh, one finds that either in very serious ways through essays or even very funny ways through quips, some of them have this sort of sentiment that they might be you know, spending the sort of cultural capital that got them there, if you will, and that's going down. You know, Benjamin Franklin, you're Republican if you can keep it, or public if you can keep it, excuse me. Like, I know that's a lot of context, but stuff like that is sort of seems to be sprinkled throughout the sentiments of many of those gents. That's right. Uh, as, as a terminological matter, I, I tend not to talk about the American founders as liberals. I think they're civic Republicans starting the transition mm. to liberalism, but part of what 
part of what they're carrying over from Pacific Republicanism is a real fascination with virtue. Right. That's very interesting, actually. Could we write that down for a future episode, please? That exact topic, if you'd like to talk about it, because I think that's that's probably another hour or two, perhaps. Uh, but I think that's so, very interesting. So, so then in a historical perspective, part of the question is, as as we shift more and more decisively from civic republicanism to liberalism in the 19th century, and you alluded to Benjamin Constant a minute ago, and, that's, mm-hmm. and Constant is also an important figure in that transition, uh, did the 19th century liberals or should the 19th century liberals have retained that orientation toward virtue? How much did they shift away from it and start to say, no, if we get the public institutions right and we respect everyone's freedom, then the society will go by itself – and how much or which ones of them thought something different, thought something about a continued need to moralize the citizenry in particular ways. Mm -hmm. That's very interesting. And I think with that, we'll actually go to our break. Uh, Everyone, you're listening to Curious Task. I'm speaking with Jacob Levy today. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions, feedback, guest recommendations, or anything else that's on your mind to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. As always, a huge thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Rosa Pajarello, Danny Leroy, and Andy Crooks. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at The Curious Task, rate us on Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task, and check out the Institute for Liberal Studies. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Curious Task. I'm speaking with Jacob Levy today uh, here, as I said, in person. I'll say it again. That's something to, to celebrate officially. I think the, the World Health Organization actually just recently officially declared the pandemic over, didn't they? So there you go. This is another symbol of that. Um, we were just talking about sort of objections to this idea of uh, liberal neutrality, Jacob, and you're, you're working us through, through some of those counter arguments. We got through two pillars of those. I want to work through another two. Um, jumping right back in here, others say as an objection to... Uh, liberalism that quote or liberal neutrality i should say liberalism is morally worthless without a robust commitment to the free individual human mind to human autonomy so liberalism ought to be hostile this is you talking down your nose to me to say for example religions that tend to stunt intellectual development and you go on to say this is what rawls called the comprehensive liberalism that his own political liberalism was opposed to so can you sort of unpack what's going on there? I mean, we just sort of came out of an objection that you, number two, the second one we covered in the first half that you say is essentially the idea that liberalism should in fact be more non-neutral and conservative almost. That's where the second objection would lead us. What's going on in this third one here? Okay. And this is one that I, I mentioned quickly while uh, talking through the the first one. This, yes. This is non-neutrality for the sake of choice promotion. And if Tocqueville is a standard name that we associate with the objection we just talked about, John Stuart Mill is going to be the standard case of this objection to neutrality. Liberals of this orientation ask the question, why do we care about freedom? And their answer is, we have to care something about what it's like to lead a free life. We have to care about freedom for the sake of the vision of individual flourishing the vision of a life that's lived from inside is one of the phrases that we'll find. And while the biggest or longest standing or most important limitations on a life lived from inside or a freely chosen life uh, has been state legislation, 
it's not the only possible limitation. And, said John Stuart Mill, now that we are reaching a modern era where we're going to outgrow all of the state legislation and all of the rules restricting people's free choice, what's going to be left is the harder stuff of cultural practices, of family norms, of just conservatism in society that prevents people from leading their lives as if they are thinking beings who have control over their own choices. So Mill's concern, the concern of the what Rawls called the comprehensive liberals following Mill, Mill's concern was not only to eliminate laws that violated what Mill referred to as the harm principle, not mm. only to violate laws that restricted individual liberty, but to encourage a change in cultural orientation, to seek a society in which all of us viewed each other's choices as being things that other people were free to do and that worried if our choices tended to collect and agglomerate into something strongly communal, worried about what it was like to be a person within one of those communities, seeking to promote the sense of agency, the sense of autonomy, the knowledge of other choices that people can be deprived of, even under conditions of, for example, complete religious liberty as a matter of law. But if you're raised in a community that is overwhelmingly in one religion, if you are given a deeply religious education, if you are taught from birth that we owe, owe duties of deep subservience to God and duties of real um, deference to religious authorities. You're taught that it's a duty to grow up and marry someone of the same faith and to raise children in the same faith. It can be the case that even though as a matter of law you have full religious liberty, you don't as a person – this is the imagination that we have in John Stuart Mill – you don't as a person really have the ability to lead your own life. Right. You're leading your community's life hmm. and that – if we care about freedom, we have to actually care about freedom as a social practice, as a lived fact. And that means we will sometimes have to go beyond neutrality into active promotion of knowledge of the range of choices and um, maybe into intervening to make sure that a range of choices actually remains available rather than being crowded out by the spontaneous action of the free religious marketplace or the free economic marketplace or the marketplace of speech or whatever. Right. I think that caps off that section nicely. And, and the final one before I ask him, maybe a couple of other follow-up questions on all this, uh, an objection you describe as follows. A neutral liberalism allows for the perpetuation of social and cultural systems of unfreedom. If we care about freedom, then we ought to care about, say, freedom from gender oppression. So liberalism shouldn't be neutral as between the traditional patriarchal family and more egalitarian forms of union, even if the formal is formally voluntary and race-respecting, you know, as an example. Um, and, and again, you sort of say that this is actually kind of interesting that this fourth objection, if you will, is sort of the flip of objection two, whereas objection two is, again, the idea that liberalism might be better off being a little more non-neutral and perhaps conservative. This is sort of the idea that liberalism should, in fact, be more non-neutral and liberatory or, or radical, one might even mm -hmm. say. Um, and and this is this is related to and continuous with the John Stuart Mill point that I was just making, and indeed it's also an idea that I think that 
mill-held, at least with respect to gender. Uh, the things that people do when they are legally free, the, the choices that they make, they will create new social facts or they will reinforce existing social facts. Either way, uh, what we do one person at a time adds up into recreating a social world that then the next individual or the next generation of individuals is shaped by. If we are coming from a world in which there are very conservative, very patriarchal gender assumptions, for example, and we remove all legal restrictions on women's ability to enter the workforce, and we change the law of marriage radically so that it's no longer the case that uh, husbands and wives are legally one person and that wives can't have credit cards or can't own property on their own ends. Make all the legal reforms you want. But what you're then empowering people to do is freely make choices that make sense to them. Well, the choices that make sense to them will very often tend to be reiterations of what they already know. And so they can recreate through free choice very rigid patterns of gender hierarchy that make it continue to be extremely difficult for anyone to choose otherwise. Everyone knows that you don't hire a woman into a career position because everyone knows that women are going to tend to drop out of the workforce to stay home and have children. Mm. Um, if everyone knows that, then it becomes self-reinforcingly true. Right. Women won't advance in the workforce. By virtue of not advancing in the workforce, they will tend to choose to go be stay-at-home mothers because they are facing a really rather low glass ceiling in the workplace. And insofar as it becomes true, it gets taught again and again and again. Mm -hmm. So even under conditions of legal non-discrimination, legal freedom to enter the workforce, legal legally egalitarian marriage, a thoroughly inegalitarian social condition can be reinforced and perpetuated generation after generation. Or even think about the norm about changing uh, a name at marriage. We're, mm -hmm. we're in Quebec, right. and Quebec is unusual among Western societies in actually prohibiting women from changing their name upon marriage. Hmm. I didn't realize it was prohibited. It's, it, uh, it, it requires a very strong case to be made in court. You, right. ca you cannot, as a matter of just automatic right, decide. It's not the default that it, they take the name. It, it's not just not, not the default. Mm -hmm. um, there's, there's a substantial legal mm. presumption against I see. a name change. You have mm -hmm. to actively justify mm. a name change. And liberals like me look at this and will standardly say, look, the right thing to do is to have shifted off the old equilibrium that mandated name changes right. and to move to a neutral permissive rule. Let people do what they want right. with their names. The response from this kind of critic of neutrality is, look, if everybody has always been used to the rule of name changes, then just changing the legal rule doesn't change the social practice. Mm -hmm. It remains the case that the first woman or the first generation of women who try not to change their names 
are going to be looked at like they've done something wrong. Mm -hmm. They're going to be asked, what, you're not really committed to the marriage? Right. They're not going to have the same last name as their children if the children follow the patrimonial naming rule. And that each of these things is going to trigger so much social Mm -hmm. cost, so much uh, social friction for them Mm -hmm. that they will overwhelmingly tend to gravitate back toward the old rule. Mm -hmm. And so if we think that changing a name at marriage is a patriarchal fact of a kind that we think free people ought to at least genuinely be free not to do, it might be that a more aggressive intervention is required, at least for a couple of generations, to break this old bad habit. Mm -hmm. Maybe after a couple of generations, you could reauthorize, re-legalize free individual choice, but then you'd have broken the bad habit. Or maybe the bad habit is, is just so bad that you ought to leave something like the Quebec rule in place. Mm-hmm. Um, this isn't my position, but I think this is a position that can make sense right. for people who care about freedom if you think, and I think this is right, if you think that in caring about freedom, we ought to care about the kind of domination that characterized the traditional patriarchal family and that the rule of name changing was a symptom and as well as being an ongoing reinforcement of that domination, well, then as people who care about freedom, we ought to care about whether we are just going to inadvertently keep reproducing Mm -hmm. this freedom-unfriendly custom and norm. Mm -hmm. And the neutralist liberal will say, still the right thing to do is just to make a neutral free choice rule. Right. This critic of neutrality will say, no, we need to do something that is more actively liberatory than that. Actively liberatory, right. And I think the, the point that from a cultural and social perspective that having this, this choice open to people but having it perhaps so against the current tradition or norm that that choice sort of ultimately becomes sort of almost like a honeypot for people that if they go in there then there's sort of like a honeypot for all this like criticism and, you know, rising certain people that do it first, for example, to basically – you know, a public scrutiny and so on. I mm-hmm. think that that deserves a lot of consideration too. That's a very interesting point. I think that the name change one was actually an excellent way to explore that there. Um, so we've explored the objections, Jacob, and I'm going to try, there's a lot here as usual, and that's great. I'm going to try and slowly start tying the bow up as our time swings down here. Um, perhaps this question will be an avenue into it. And I, of course, I invite you as always to take it whatever direction you'd like. It does seem to me that the kind of thinking you did in rationalism, pluralism, and freedom, though, sort of parallels almost all these objections, at least to some degree. And here's where I'm coming from. It would seem that someone's stance or outlook on the spectrum of where they stand on each of these objections might also parallel whether they're leaning more towards sort of rationalist or pluralist tendencies. And to make this easier for you, I'm going to say we're going to assume everyone listening here has already listened to the rationalism, <laughs> pluralism, freedom episode, so you can jump into the answer rather than us reviewing that. So or, I'm going to, I'm going to help you out there. Or has read the book. Or you has read the book, too. exactly. And folks, I do encourage you to check out that episode if you haven't or, or read the book. But 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 I, I, that was sort of a fun one. I'm not sure if I'm, I haven't even teased that out as much in my head if I really think that's a, a solid connection there. But I hope you see a little bit of what I'm saying. I do. Uh, and... Um, Before I talk about the book, I'll just say I didn't discuss these debates in the book. Um, Within political theory, the question, is liberalism neutral, was a a major question in the 1970s and early 1980s. And then it really fell into a kind of uh, abeyance. I think that there's been an upsurge of interest in it in the last couple of years. 
and autobiographically. Last semester, for the first time in my life, actually, I, I taught a class on liberal political thought. And in the course of organizing the syllabus, I got kind of re-energized about this old debate. But so you're not going to find the language of neutrality in rationalism, pluralism, and freedom, which I wrote during this period of time when that just wasn't uh, one of the dominant ways of worrying about these questions. Uh, to map the rationalism, pluralism distinction onto this um, is – is going to go in a couple of steps. The liberatory critic of neutrality will tend to be a rationalist liberal mm -hmm. because pluralism rests on the generation of local communal, local associational, local free choice, sets of norms, sets of ways of life. Um, one of the reasons why people will apt, opt for rationalist liberalism is because they seek to break up those communities or to transform mm -hmm. them in a more aggressively liberal way. Um, and John Stuart Mill is one of my prototypical uh, rationalist liberals mm -hmm. in the book. Tocqueville is one of my standard pluralist liberals. That is someone who imagines the public regime of liberal market democratic constitutional freedom can be sustained only if there are self-regenerating communities of virtue and morality within society, which will be what we find in the family, what we find in the church, what we find in the voluntary association. Uh, so notice what just happened there. I, I picked two people who today we've identified as critics of neutrality, mm -hmm. and they are the two sides of the book. Right. Um, you could also be a neutralist liberal on either side. You can be a neutral – you can be an advocate of neutrality in institutions and a pluralist in substance because you think if you give people formal freedom of association, what's going to happen is they're going to associate and therefore there's not any contradiction to worry about. Mm. Get the neutral laws right – and society will take care of itself. This is uh, relatively familiarly what a lot of people think about market economies. Uh, it's not that you have to actively get in there and promote the bourgeois virtues. It's not that you have to actively get in there and teach people how to be good savers or good consumers. It's you need to get the adverbial rules of property and contract right. And then people will respond to incentives and they will go on producing uh, – producing and consuming and working and so on, and the economy will go of its own accord. People have thought things like that about freedom of speech too. Get the public neutral with respect to content rules of freedom of speech and debate will follow and people will work out truer views rather than more false views and things will go of their own accord. You could also be – you could also have an orientation toward neutrality in the institutions uh, and a rationalist view about the way a good liberal society looks if you think that the bad conservative kinds of worldviews mm. don't work without active state support and that if you get the public institutions right and the people who think this will then tend to say including public education – to make sure that everyone 
who's a citizen of a liberal society at least learns what their rights are and learns what choices they have available to them, whatever else they are learning at home or in church or whatever. If you get the public institutions right, then um, you can have a society of effective substantive liberation and freedom without having to impose liberation. Mm-hmm. Um, for the name change example, mm-hmm. you could have people who think if you make it a matter of free individual choice whether to change your name or not, then people's attraction to women's attraction to living free, equal lives is going to mean that even though it doesn't change immediately, it's going to happen mm-hmm. or it's going to happen a lot and enough and just guaranteeing the neutral public freedom will be enough to gradually get you to some kind of liberation. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's neutrality to found on both sides in the book. But the other two, the other kinds of criticisms that we're talking about, they get sorted out mm-hmm. be- between the rationalist critics of neutrality who promote autonomy, promote free choice, and therefore want to constrain associational life. Mm-hmm. And the virtue-oriented pluralists like Tocqueville who want to make sure that there's enough social conservatism to balance out the public liberalism. Right. That makes a lot of sense. Um, And with that, our time has pretty much wound down here. So I'm going to move us to the formal wrap-up. And as usual, I want to make sure that the guest ultimately has the last word in these chats. So official last question here, Jacob, if you could bring it full circle and put a finer point on our exploration of the question. Let me ask you what do you ultimately hope are the main takeaways for someone listening to here on whether liberalism is neutral and and what we've discussed today, really? In other words, if you want someone to take away one, two, or just a few things from everything we've discussed today about this question and and what we've been talking about, what would that ultimately be? I think for a lot of listeners, the, the most important thing is to take away the initial intuition about why neutrality is something that people think of in association with liberalism at all. To understand what it is that ties together the freedom of religion example and the rule of law that's impartial as among persons and the rules of the market economy that don't tell you what to produce. They only tell you how to own things and how to buy and sell things. The rules of freedom of speech and so on. There, There's something powerful to understand there in order to understand liberalism. And it's powerful enough that 20th century liberals as different as John Rawls and Friedrich Hayek both put a real emphasis on neutrality expressed differently but getting at similar things as well as a kind of neighboring sort of liberal conservative like Michael Oakeshott puts a lot of emphasis on this. Um, I think it's important to, to get that thought before starting to worry about the criticisms of it. Uh, But then the second thing is to start to understand the the double-sided criticism. On the one hand, the conservative criticisms that say the liberal order depends on something outside itself. The liberal order depends on social practices and social inheritances that it might not be able to generate from within itself or that it might not be able to generate within itself unless it tries. So the first of those is the neoconservative version. The liberalism is just going to spend down its inheritance. The second of them is something like Tocqueville. Um, 
we can have a self-sustaining liberal order, but we have to work at it. We have to make sure that people are raised to be virtuous and responsible and to be good savers and to be monogamous in marriage. And so, uh, That's one line of criticism aimed at staving off what people take to be the degraded and chaotic character of consumerist or nihilist or amoral modern liberalism. Hmm. The other line of criticism is to say society has its own strong tendencies and people's free choices will still tend to aggregate into what in other contexts we refer to as spontaneous orders. The spontaneous order is still an order and it is hard to break out of. And while there are some attractive things about that in a variety of settings, there can also be unattractive things about it if what we care about are free people living freely, about people being able to lead lives from the inside and making choices and being able to live lives that make sense in terms of their choices. Uh, The fact that the social order that I inhabit isn't dictated by state law sometimes isn't going to be enough to make it possible for me to really feel like I can live a life freely from the inside. And I think that both of those directions of criticism are worth engaging with and struggling with. That's a great place to leave it. So, Jacob Levy, thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task again. Thank you for having me back. I'm always happy to be here. Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. This episode was produced by Alex Aragona, Sabine Elchediak, and Eric Segain. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you hear on the podcast is by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona, and thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task. Curious Task.